Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening. Come in, slip out of that mush and slush gear and pour a drink. It's, uh, it's nice warm stuff. Settle. There. Welcome. Oh, you. You're new, yes? So, who am I? Where are you? What is this? Well, I'm Lawrence Santoro. This is Tales to Terrify. Welcome to the Nook. And you've just settled into... What is it? Show nine. Good grief. Oh, yes, yes, it is a little darker in here tonight. It's, it's just atmosphere. Don't you think darkness, the nearness of another person, helps to kind of gin up the joy when devouring horror? Yeah, when summer comes, we'll we'll have to start hanging out in the woods where the dark is natural and buttressed by sounds and small lights, just light enough to make deep shadows anyway. We can build a fire, roast things, fresh corn wrapped in mud and steamed through marshmallows, weenies, and... Well, no, 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 I'm not yearning for summer. <laughs> really not. Actually, I, I hate summer. Heat, humidity, sweat. No, no, I, I prefer the chill, the wind howl, the whisk of the snow and the pains. Love to watch it pile up against the trees, the houses... I keep dreaming of a real snowfall, ones ones like I had in my kidhood, ones that buried dinosaurs and streetcars. Well, well, enough of that. It's darker in here because we're about to listen to a couple of tales to terrify. That's what you're here for, yes? You spend an hour and a bit more, put a little terror in your life? Hmm? Well, to begin at the beginning... We'll have a short story from Silvia Moreno-Garcia. I'll crash right into this one because, well, because I just can't wait. Oh, the joys of journalism. The reading is by Amy H. Sturgis. Here's Dr. Amy with... Flash Frame 
The sound is yellow. It was when you could still make a living freelancing in Mexico City. Nowadays, it's wire services and regurgitated shit. But in 1982, rags still needed original content. I did a couple of funky articles. The latest about the cheapest whore in the city for Enigma, a mixed bag of crime stories, tits, and freakish news items. It paid well and on time. I also did articles for an arts and culture magazine, which I was hoping would turn into a permanent position. But when it came time to gather rent money, Enigma was first on my mind. The trouble was that there was a new assistant editor at Enigma, and he didn't like the old crop of stringers. To get past him, I had to pitch harder. I needed better stories—stories stories he couldn't refuse. The crime stuff was a bust. Nothing good recently, so I moved on to sex and decided to swing by El Tabu, a porno cinema housed in a great Art Deco building. It's gone now. Bulldozed to make way for condos. Back then, it still stood, both ruined and glorious. The great days of porno of the seventies had come and gone, and video cassettes were invading the market. El Tabu stood defiant, yet crumbling. Inside, you could find rats as big as rabbits, statues holding torchlights in their hands, and a Venus in the lobby, elegant, ancient, and large. Some people came to sleep during a double feature and used the washrooms to take a bath. Others came for the shows. Some were peddling. I'm not going to explain what they were peddling. You figure it out. It was a good place to listen to chatter. A stringer needs that chatter. One afternoon, I gathered my notebook and my tape recorder, paid for a ticket, and went looking for Sebastian, the projectionist, who had a knack for gossiping and profiting from it. Sebastian hadn't heard any interesting things. There was some vague stuff about a whole squadron of Russian prostitutes in a high-rise apartment building near downtown, and university students selling themselves for sex. But I'd heard it before. Then Sebastian got a funny look on his face and asked me for a cigarette. This meant he was zeroing on the good stuff. I don't think I should tell you, but there's a religious group coming in every Thursday, he said as he took a puff. Order of something. Have you heard of Enrique Zazoya? No, I said. He's the one that's renting the place for the group. A porno theater doesn't seem like the nicest place for a congregation. I think it's some sort of sex cult. I can't tell because I don't look. They bring their own projectionist, and I have to wait in the lobby. Sebastian explained. So how do you know it's a sex cult, and they're not worshiping Jesus? I can't watch, but I can very well hear some stuff. It doesn't sound like Jesus. There was no Wikipedia. You couldn't Google a name. What you could do was go through archives and dig out microfiches. Fortunately, Enrique Zazoya wasn't that hard to find. An ex-hippie activist in the sixties, he had turned New Age guru in the early seventies, doing horoscopes. He'd peaked mid-decade, selling natal charts to a few celebrities, then sinking into anonymity. There was nothing about him in the past few years, but he'd obviously found a new source of employment in this religious order. Armed with the background I had clubbed together, I ventured to El Tabu the following Thursday with my worn backpack containing my notebook, my tape recorder, and my cigarettes. 
The tape recorder was a bit banged up, and sometimes it wouldn't play right, or it would switch on record for no reason. But I didn't have money to get a new one. The cigarettes, on the other hand, could be counted upon on any occasion. Sebastian didn't look too happy to see me, but I mentioned some money, and he softened. He agreed to sneak me into the theater before the show started, onto the second balcony, where I would not be spotted. The place was huge, and the crowd that gathered every Thursday was small. They wouldn't notice me. Sitting behind a red velvet curtain, eating pistachios, I waited for the show to start. At about eight o'clock, about fifty people walked in. I peeked from behind my hiding place and recognized Enrique Zazoya as he moved to the front of the theater. He was dressed in a bright yellow outfit. He said a few words, which I couldn't make out, and then he sat down. That was that. The projection started. It was a faux Roman movie. Rome is seen by some Hollywood producer. It could have been filmed in 1954 and directed by DeMille, except DeMille wouldn't have featured bare tits, lots of women half dressed in what was some sort of throne room. In the background, I noticed several men and women, less comely and muscled, slightly unsettling in their looks. There was something twisted and perverted about them, but the camera focused on the people in the foreground. The young and beautiful women giggling and feeding grapes to a guy. There were men, chests bared, leaning against a column. The tableau was completed by an actor who was playing an emperor and his companion, a dark-haired beauty. It lasted about ten minutes. Just before the lights went on, I caught sight of a flash frame, a single brief image of a woman in a yellow dress. That was it. Enrique Zuzoya stood to speak to the audience. I didn't hear what he was saying. I was sitting too far back, but it wasn't anything of consequence because just a short while later, everyone was out the door. I left feeling dejected. There was nothing to write about. Ten minutes of some porno, probably imported from Italy, and even that it had been disappointing. You could hardly see much of anything in that scene they'd chosen. Bare breasts, yes, but nothing more. What a waste! I returned the following Thursday because I kept thinking there had to be something more. Maybe the previous show had been a bust, but this one might be better. Sebastian let me in after I shared my cigarettes, and I sat down in the balcony. People arrived, took their seats. Enrique Zazoya, in his yellow outfit, said a few words, and the projection began. It was the same deal. Only this time the group was larger, maybe a hundred people. I was disappointed to see the film was the one we had watched last time. Not the same section, but it was obviously the same movie. This time the sequence took place in a Roman circus where aristocrats had gathered to watch a chariot race. There was more nudity, and the erotic content had been amped up a bit with a stony-looking emperor sitting with two naked girls in his lap. One of them, the dark-haired woman from the previous sequence, fondling their breasts. Unfortunately, he seemed more interested in the race than the women. The music was loud and of poor quality. There was no dialogue. There hadn't been any dialogue in the previous scene either, which struck me as a bit odd, since you'd expect a few jokes or poor attempts at breathless sexiness at this point. The emperor mouthed a few words, and I realized the audio track must have been removed. 
The music playing was probably layered onto the film to replace the original soundtrack and had nothing to do with the film. Someone had taken the added effort of inserting moans and sighs into the audio track, but the dialogue track had been clearly lost. Not that it would be much of a loss for this type of flick. The emperor mouthed something else, and again I noticed a flash frame, a few seconds long, of a woman in a yellow dress. She was sitting in a throne room, held a fan against her face, and her blonde hair was laced with jewels. The film was cut off shortly afterwards, and the audience left. I drummed my fingers against my stenopad. What I had was nothing but some European exploitation movie, probably filmed in the late seventies by the looks of it, which for some odd reason attracted a group of about a hundred people to its weekly screening. And it wasn't even screened completely, just a few minutes of it. Why? I visited the Cineteca Nacional on Monday, which was the place to find information about movies. I had very little to go by, and looking through newspaper clips and data sheets proved fruitless. I asked one of the employees at the Cineteca's Documentation and Information Center for assistance, and she said she'd phone me if she found something. I decided to move in a different direction, expanding my knowledge of Zozoya. He'd been a film student before turning to astrology, even shooting a couple of shorts. Aside from that, which might explain how he got hold of this bit of film, there was nothing new. Tuesday I pounded some copy for the Arts and Culture magazine, ready to give up on El Taboo. Wednesday, I had a nightmare. I was laying in bed when a woman crawled up, onto me. She was naked, but wore a golden headpiece with a veil. Her skin was a sickly yellow, as though she were jaundiced. She pressed her breasts against my chest and began rubbing herself against me. I touched her hips, but withdrew my hand quickly. There was something unpleasant about the texture of her skin. I lifted a hand, pulling at her veil. But she had no face. It was only a yellow blur. When I woke up, it was nearly nine and I was late for my meeting with the editor of the Arts and Culture magazine. I turned in my copy and left quickly. I didn't feel well. I went home, laid down, and spent most of the day dozing in front of the television set. I looked at my stenopad and the lined, yellow pages reminded me of leprous skin. I didn't do much writing that afternoon. Thursday evening... I returned to El Taboo. Journalists know when they've caught the scent of a good story. It's a sixth sense, learning to distinguish the golden nuggets amongst the pebbles. I knew I had a nugget. I just couldn't see it yet. This time the sequence took place in a banquet hall, with all the guests wearing masks and sitting naked. Several of the actors were unsuitable for such a scene, with obvious physical flaws, including scars. A few of them looked filthy, as though they had not bathed in several weeks. The emperor and the dark-haired woman next to him were the only ones not wearing masks. They both stared rigidly ahead as the guests began to copulate on the floor. The woman whispered something to the emperor. He nodded. 
This time it was not a flash frame. We were treated to a full minute of footage showing the woman in the yellow dress, the fan held in front of her face, yellow curtains billowing behind her and allowing us a glimpse of a long hallway full of pillars. The woman crooked a finger towards the audience as if calling for us. The film switched back to the banquet scene where the young woman sitting next to the emperor had collapsed. Slaves were trying to revive her, but her tongue poked out of her mouth grotesquely. The soundtrack, with its moans and sighs, was completely unsuited for this scene. The lights went on. I listened carefully, trying to catch what Zozoya said. It sounded like he was chanting. The congregation chanted with him. I noticed it was a larger group, perhaps two hundred people, singing. I grabbed my jacket and stepped out. Life was too short to waste it on exploitation flicks and weirdos. Three days later, I had another nightmare. Light, gentle fingertips fell on my temples, then trickled down my face, neck, and chest. Nails raked my arms. I woke to see the woman with the yellow veil. She was on her knees. She showed me her vulva, spreading it open with her fingers. Yellow, like her skin. An awful, sickly yellow. She pressed her hands, which seemed oily to the touch, against my chest. I woke up, rushed to the bathroom, and vomited. In the morning, I cracked a couple of eggs. I stared at the bright yellow yolks, then tossed them down the drain. I spent most of the morning sitting in the living room, shuffling papers and going over my notes for an arts and culture article. Every once in a while, I glanced at the manila folder containing my research on El Taboo. The beige envelope seemed positively yellow. I tossed the whole thing down the garbage chute. Wednesday, I dreamt about her again. When I woke up, I could barely button my shirt. I was supposed to go pick up a check for my arts and culture story, but when I reached a busy intersection, I caught sight of all the yellow taxis rolling down the street. They resembled lithe scarabs. A stall had sunflowers for sale. I turned around and rushed back to my apartment. I sat in front of the television set, shivering. I'm not sure at what time I fell asleep, but in my dreams, she was gnawing my chest. I woke up at once, screaming. I shuffled through the apartment, desperately looking for my cigarettes. I grabbed my backpack, all its contents stumbling onto the floor. My tape recorder bounced against the couch. The play button went on. I grabbed a cigarette, heard the whirring of the recorder, and then... A sound. It was the movie's soundtrack. It must have been recording the last time I was there. I was about to switch it off when I heard something. The cigarette fell from my mouth. Sneaking into El Taboo was not hard. Bums planning on spending the night there did it all the time. I sat in the balcony, my hands on my backpack. Below me, 
I counted some three hundred viewers. The movie began to play. The emperor rode in an open litter. He was headed to a funeral, the funeral of the black-haired woman. It was a procession. Men held torches to light the way. One could glimpse men and women copulating in the background behind the rows of slaves with the torches. If you looked carefully, you might see that some of the people writhing on the floor were not making love to anything human. The emperor rode in his litter and did not see any of this. The camera pulled back to show he was not alone. There was a woman with him. She wore a yellow gown. She began taking off her gown, lifting her veil. It was yellow, the shade of a bright flame. He looked away from her, as did I. I lit a match. I woke up late the next day to the insistent ringing of the phone. I picked it up and rested my back against the wall. It was the lady from the Cineteca Nacional. She said she had that information about the Italian film I had been looking for. It was called Nero's Last Days. They had a print in the vault. On March twenty fourth, nineteen eighty two, a great fire destroyed ninety nine percent of the film archives of the Cineteca Nazionale. One of the vaults alone kept two thousand prints made out of nitrocellulose. It took the firemen sixteen hours to put the whole thing out. As for El Tabu, I already told you about it. They made the site into condos after twenty years of the empty. Charred lots sitting there. You were wondering why. I'll tell you why. It was the sound recording. The tape had caught what my ears could not hear—the real audio track of the movie, the voice track. It's hard to describe. The sound was yellow, a bright, noxious. Yellow, festering, open, the sound of withered teeth scraping against flesh, of pustules bursting open, diseased, hungry. The voice, yellow, speaking to the audience, telling it things, asking for things, yellow limbs and yellow lips, and the yellow maw, the voracious voice. That should never have spoken at all. The things it asked for, insatiable. Yellow. Warning signs are yellow. I paid attention to the warning. I did get that job at the Arts and Culture magazine. I've been associate editor for five years now, but some things never change. I carry my backpack everywhere. Never been a briefcase person. I still smoke a pack a day. Same brand. Still use matches. Anyway, I've got a very important screening. The Cineteca Nacional is doing a retrospective of 1970s cinema. They have some great Mexican movies. Also, some obscure European flicks. There's a rare print that was just discovered a few months ago. Part of the film collection of Enrique Zozoya's widow, who was an avid collector of European movies, it was thought lost 
years ago. It's called Nero's Last Days. Since 1982, the Cineteca Nacional has gotten more high-tech, with neat features like its temperature-controlled vaults. But since 1982, I've learned a thing or two about chemistry. It'll take the firemen more than 16 hours to put it out. Silvia Moreno-Garcia was born and raised in Mexico. Several years ago, she moved to British Columbia with her family and two cats. She writes every kind of speculative fiction, from magic realism to horror. Her stories have appeared in Fantasy Magazine, The Book of Cthulhu, and Shine, an anthology of optimistic science fiction. Sylvia is the publisher of the Canadian micro-publishing venture Innsmouth Free Press. They specialize in horror and dark speculative fiction. Stop by her site and have a look. In 2011, Sylvia won the Carter v. Cooper Memorial Prize in the Emerging Writer category. That's sponsored by Gloria Vanderbilt and Exile Quarterly. She was also a finalist for the Manchester Fiction Prize. We'll switch gears here. Poetry this week comes from one of my favorites, Marge Simon. It's from her Bram Stoker Award-nominated collection, Unearthly Delights. Music smooth as fog. The nurse thinks I'm asleep, but I never swallow her pills. I know how to get outside if I want to. Not very far, just on the ledge, if I'm careful to shut the drapes and leave the window open. I like it there. The alley below is very old, a lair for scavengers. Their music is pale and wet, smooth as fog. I can smell the ocean underneath the oily fumes, watch the night things dance. Long and tall their shadows rise almost to my ledge. I can pull their darkness over me as a veil, when I make my way back inside, there is blood on my tongue. I think I tell no secrets. Marge is the wife of Stoker-nominated poet Bruce Boston, whose work we've featured here in the past— Lest you think I'm playing favorites, Bruce and Marge, between them, have three of the five Stoker-nominated poetry collections this year. They're just that good. I've actually met Marge, never met Bruce, but I know them both very well. Marge was a contributor to a long-lost magazine, which I ran years ago, called Feral Fiction. Thank you, Marge. We've got several of Marge's poems in our hopper, and we'll be doing more as, as the weeks go on. And thank you to Celia Santoro for reading Music Smooth as Fog. Years ago, Cecilia and I did some theater together in Pennsylvania. We also used to read together poetry and such. Then, as these things go, we lost touch one with the other. Then, through various earth magics, we reconnected. And 40 years after our theatrical career ended, we were married. 
To Celia, writes, reads, draws, and does a thousand wonderful things. Thank you for that. All right. We're trying something new this week. Well, it's old and new. It's a review. <laughs> That's old, yes, yes. And it's a review of an oldish film, Dylan Dog, Dead of Night. Old, well, it's from last year. By current standards of age and venerability, that makes it old. Its venerability is what we're assessing, of course. And what's new about what we're going to do just now is that this review is by one Martin Munt. And it's part of a series we're calling Munt Speaks. Not a regular movie review. Dylan Dog, Dead of Night. Warning, I spoil plot points in this review. I hadn't really planned on writing a review, but when I started thinking about this movie, I guess my thoughts turned into one, so here it is for everybody who has been desperately waiting to hear what I thought about Dylan Dog, Dead of Night. Dylan Dog, double Dylan Dog warning, I tell you what happens in the movie in this review, so don't blame me if you keep listening. The movie lies somewhere between Hellboy and the straight-to-poop cable movies that the Siffy Channel pumps out as original programming, but way closer to Hellboy. And I really enjoyed Hellboy. And I'm referring to the first Hellboy, not the second one. So let's start with a spectrum. Hellboy 1, a really good movie. Dylan Dog, Dead of Night, not such a bad movie. Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, not such a good movie. Siffy Channel original programming, straight-to-poop cable movies. Brandon Routh played Dylan Dog in a low-key and deadpan manner with kind of a noirish sensibility, I thought. Or maybe he can't act. I couldn't tell, but I'm going to go with a noirish sensibility since I've never seen him in anything else, and he looked like a nice enough guy, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I figure he picked a low-energy acting choice rather than an affectless, non-acting inability. And aren't I a real open-minded mensch? Yea, Brandon Routh, I praise you for your successful acting choices. Actually, he eerily reminded me of Chris Noth facially, except he doesn't have that same just-beneath-the-surface psycho menace that Chris Noth always projects so effortlessly for me. In other words, Chris Noth scares me, Brandon Routh doesn't. I kept thinking through the whole movie that he looked like Chris Noth's little brother, and so I kind of felt a little bad for him, like maybe he had to go through life making excuses for Chris's bad behavior all the time to everybody. But you know what? Enough about Brandon Routh already. Low-key, deadpan, noirish. He was funny. He was heroic. He was anti-heroic. I really had no problem with him. If I ever get to make a movie, I'd put him in it. Of course, if he ever reads this review, he probably wouldn't want to be in one of my movies, but that's a problem I guess I'll deal with later. Peter Stormare played Gabriel the Werewolf. I like him. He scares me. But as usual, he's not in the movie enough. He needs to be used more upfront in movies. And yes, I realize he's not a lead actor. I don't care. I'm just saying it's all. At any rate, Peter Stormare was good if underutilized. 
He does stuff with his face and voice that other parts of the movie have to do with CGI, except he does it better and without CGI. Anita Bream played Elizabeth, who was playing both ends against the middle. I can't credit myself with any special psychic movie powers. It just seemed pretty obvious to me that her character wasn't what she said she was. Why everybody else in the movie didn't realize this is beyond me. If I could see it, then I figure a lemur with both eyes carved out by a spoon should have been able to see it. Fair warning, I was surprised by the reveals at the ends of both The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. So if I saw her con game for what it was, then what does that tell you about Elizabeth the character's powers of conmanship? But, to be fair, Elizabeth the character seemed to be concerned mostly with the plot, which had something to do with the end of the world, or ultimate power, or surpassing evil, or some such thing. I find myself unable to remember which specific surpassing ultimate anymore, although there was this cross thingy, artifact, stabby thingy involved. And Elizabeth the character got killed by Kurt Angle's character Wolfgang, who was a werewolf. I think. I don't remember exactly anymore. But that's what I'm going with here. If I'm wrong, you'll be surprised when you see the movie. Oh, and the plot gets resolved without the surpassing ultimate evil mucking everything up. So there. Bet you didn't see that coming. But the plot wasn't really the point of the movie, I don't think. The characters were. And unfortunately, I think, for me at least, Anita Bream's character got too entangled with the plot and not entangled enough with the other characters for her to be particularly interesting. And now, when I'm writing this a week or so after I saw the movie, I can't remember much about Elizabeth the character. And I feel bad about that. Just as a commercial aside for myself, the pissant little shit writer who can't keep his nose out of other people's business where it doesn't belong, I could have written a better part for Elizabeth the character. But probably also anything I wrote would have cost too much money anyways. You see, I'm thinking she's really twins, and one of her is good and the other is evil, but they're both subject to unpredictable random blackouts. And they're also psychically connected to each other, and Dylan never knows if he's with the evil one, who has evil plans, or if he's with the good one, who has good plans. And, no, wait, wait, even better, they're triplets. But even they don't know they're triplets. And that way Anita Bream gets to play three parts in one movie, and so it's a win-win-win situation. But that's beside the point, because who asks me to write movies? No one, I tell you. No one. Tay Diggs played the most evil of the evil vampires. What can I say about him? He does a good evil vampire. I don't think they gave him a particularly evil, evil vampire to work with, but given the sheer leering evil tonnage of evil vampires galumphing around the Googleplexes these days, how many really interesting ones are there going to be? He looked good, he got screwed in the end, and then he got killed. Big surprise. Actually, he could have been the biggest evil douche vampire in the entire movie world, and people would probably still have liked him because, you know, he's really good looking. In fact, I bet he could probably have been in charge of the vampires even if he weren't a vampire himself, because really, let's face it, he's just that good looking. If you're going to send somebody to do something really shitty for you, hey, why not send Tay Diggs? But anyway, like I said, 
Despite his really huge good looks, he gets killed in the end because he's the head evil douche vampire, and he kind of has to. And Sam Huntington played Marcus, Dylan's zombie sidekick, who was the best zombie sidekick I've ever seen. Okay, that sounds like I'm damning him with faint praise, when he really was a really good zombie sidekick. I particularly liked him in the body shop scene. The whole movie took place in New Orleans, although for the most part it looked like any place USA to me. According to what I've read about the comic books, the story is supposed to be set in London. If a setting is supposed to be like another character in a story, then I'd say that using this New Orleans instead of London is kind of like exchanging Kate Bush for Courtney Love on a heroin binge. Mostly warehouses and apartments and part of a cemetery that honestly, if I hadn't known was supposed to be in New Orleans, wouldn't have jumped out at me and screamed New Orleans. Enough said. I originally thought that the movie was a bit top-heavy with flashbacks, but that was before I saw Thor. Now, post-Thor, not so much. At any rate, the flashbacks kind of bothered me at the time, but not now. What can I say? I've matured. Now for my pet peeve. Fight scenes. Most of you can probably skip this section. It's the equivalent of an old man screaming, Get off my lawn! Except I'm screaming, Do the fight scenes better! Like most CGI fight scenes, the point of view seems to shift constantly, and the whole fight focuses on movement, not coherence, at least to me. Where exactly do we see any CGI fight scene from? The floor? The ceiling, the tip of someone's fist, all of the above in sequential one-sixteenth second bursts? Who the fuck knows? Maybe somebody clamped the camera to an oblate spheroid that rotates randomly around the fight as the whole circus floats through space on a non-continuous helix. Oh, and they're poorly lit. I usually give up on fight scenes in movies these days and spend the time recreating Mamie Van Doren scenes in the Navy versus the Night Monsters in my head instead. Nobody's going to win until the end of the movie anyways, and the odds are not really then either, if there is even a whiff of a chance of a franchise to be sniffed. I went home and watched Tyrone Power and Basil Rathbone's sword fight in The Mark of Zorro. Go, watch it, and tell me if it doesn't look like Basil Rathbone actually gets run through at the end. Then I watched John Wayne and Victor McLaughlin fistfight in The Quiet Man. That made me feel better. So... Did I actually enjoy this movie? Yes, I did. You could spend $7 on something worse, no problem. Like a meal at McDonald's, or half a Justin Bieber CD, or anything by Stephanie Meyer. Expectations played a role, because I'd never read the comics, so, frankly, I didn't have any expectations. But if they make a sequel, I'd go see it. And if they let me write the sequel, even better. That I'd go see three or four times. And thank you, Marty. Marty has more, and we're looking forward to it. Marty, by the way, is the gentleman whose story, Chair, kicked off Tales to Terrify way back then, nine, nine, nine weeks ago. Time flies, doesn't it, when you're sitting in the dark? Our long tale tonight is by David Thomas Lord. I know David. I know him best by another name, but it's a name I dare not speak, 
I know this gentleman, and gentleman he is, from various conventions, from one memorable Nikon event many, many years back, and from dozens of notes, letters, phone calls, etc. David has had a varied and interesting life, at least the David that I know by that other name has. What's important here is that we're now going to hear his story in my house of crafted cards. Dread had returned after all these years of joy. Just as it is common for a man to want to see a perfected image of himself and his son, so too is it natural that the son will rebel against the constraints of recreating his father's recalled image of his younger self. Not so with Isaac. My son was always the perfect child. Clever and studious, athletic and graceful, proud and polite. Isaac excelled in everything and grew to manhood with his mother's beauty and artistry. Her genteel attributes softened and humanized my more scholastic, would she say pedantic, traits. He could have become anything he wished, and yet he wished to become just like me, as I had become like my own father, and he his, and my grandfather like his own. The standing hall clock chimed, my great-grandfather's, a certain reminder, but comfort or curse. Isaac's foreign university years were difficult on me, I admit. I know I should say, on his mother and I both. I only missed my dearest friend. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But she? She had lost her prized escort to Amsterdam's finer aspects and saw no relief in me. Isaac had chosen to take instruction during his semester breaks as well and travelled the continent as far as Asia Minor to learn of the diseases and treatments that so fascinated us both. It was not until he returned home for his internship that we, his parents, learned of the brief but mysterious illness that had sapped his strength and of the delicate English rose who would restore it. His tour of the continent, both the light and the dark of it, if I knew his ever-inquisitive mind, concluded with his bringing us an unexpected present. Our son, Dr Isaac Reichman, 
came home to Amsterdam to us with his new fiancée, Elizabeth Catherine Wilde. As they walked through the front door, my great-grandfather's hall clock sounded. An omen overlooked. Tall and lithe, with pretty light brown hair and china blue eyes, Elizabeth had the look of an aristocratic ballerina. However, it was not so much in her features, but in her temperament, where I noticed that Isaac had chosen as I had. Isaac had chosen a replica of his mother. All through the holiday resulting from Isaac's return and the impending nuptials, Elizabeth grew beloved of friends and family alike. And Isaac returned to the full strength that befitted his maturity. Joy blew all through the Reichman manse the whole summer. Flowers and music and laughter decorated its halls like never before. Even the subtle tightness that sometimes pulled my Sarah's eyes and mouth taut with anticipation, with the expectation of disappointment and ruin, seemed to relax into a sense of fulfilment, of completion. Ever the sentinel, the interpreter, the commentator, my beloved clock voiced its agreement from the foyer. Naturally, Isaac would join my practice and assist in my work. He always said he would. Naturally, Elizabeth would wear Sarah's bridal gown, veil and jewels. We had no other daughter to inherit them. Naturally, the newlyweds would make their home with us. We had so much room. It was settled then. Their lives, our lives. We waited for the autumn to formally announce their engagement. The fate was to be the highlight of the social season. All of Amsterdam was invited. High-ranking officials, judges and lawyers of our long acquaintance. Scholars and educators from my still active ties to the university. Sarah's darlings of the art world performers and painters, musicians and poets. Our overly large and recently overly empty house was filled with life, with intellect and with gaiety. Precisely as my grandfather clock struck, the young couple made the most impressive entrance down the main staircase into the foyer. Both were radiant in their formal dress. I could not imagine how their wedding portrait would possibly compare to the vision of them descending the staircase. Isaac and Elizabeth welcomed each guest, family and friend, as if no other person existed on the planet. They greeted each trite and tired expression of happiness as pure poetry. Any misplaced overture or snub they drew into the mean, into a rare state of communion, so that all might feel their joy. From the toasts to the appetizers to the dancing to the dinner, the Reichman house was a frenzy of conviviality. Old quarrels were patched, new romances begun. This was the happiest omen, the greatest gift for a new couple. After the feast was cleared, we returned to the dancing. I stood aside, upright of the musicians, and picked out my small family in the crowd. I first noticed Sarah. All through the engagement fate, she dined and danced and delighted with the young people and left me to my older associates. All evening, Sarah laughed too brightly, danced too recklessly, drank too deeply. Her eyes seemed to grow in her face, frightened bird eyes that saw dangers inexistent. Her smile stretched into a plaster rectus, a joyless, pained and painted smile of some puppet master's creation. Then, suddenly, she was alone on the edge of our reception room, and just as suddenly, my clock struck from outside the room. Time stopped for me. The distance between us meant nothing, not in metres nor in time. She was neither far enough away in the room, nor in our experiences, that I could not see her turmoil returning. The fine webbing at Sarah's eyes and mouth tightened into anxious stress and fractured her tentative calm. Why now? 
Why, with everything so right? I took a moment to determine the best path to her across the large and crowded room. And in that moment, I saw Elizabeth in my visual sweep. Immediately after, I saw Isaac. My son, my ideal, my paragon, began to shrink before my eyes. Or was it from them? He seemed to be caught in some version of -of tug-of-war between his bride and a man I know I had never seen before. To see that man once was to know him well, well enough. But even then, I knew with instantaneous dismay that this was not Isaac's first meeting with this man, nor Elizabeth's. It was cruel and torturous, my route through this well-known room. My room, my house. Which way to turn first? To Sarah, who needed me so? Who always did? Or to my Isaac, so strong, so sure, so compromised? And there were the guests, my dear and well-meaning friends. How gently I tried to accomplish my mission to save my house and stave off destruction so primally comprehended without disturbing their enjoyment. With a murmur here, a nudge or a pat there, a smile, a squeeze, a stroke, I traversed the room. I zigged and zagged, careened and cut my way in what must not have been as gentle a swathe as I had meant it to be. I finally met up with Elizabeth, alone. That is when I first saw the difference in her. Elizabeth's patrician reserve cooled, detached, and then froze into haughty solitariness. The music of her voice became a strident dissidence to my ears. Her earlier glow had become feverish. Her composed carriage and edifice, all indicating a terrible secret she held too close. Where, Elizabeth, did our Isaac go? Never turning, never breaking, she answered dully. With him. I knew, of course, which him she meant, even if I did not know the gentleman. The blonde man, daughter. If blonde is what you wish to call it, dead white is what it seems to me. And then she turned to face me, and I saw before I heard a more tragic truth. And daughter no longer, I fear, good doctor, for the creature that has just taken your Isaac has taken mine away as well. Amidst the swelling waltz and swirling crowd, Elizabeth and I stood as twin islands in a turbulent sea. We held to each other as we held our hopes and devotions, gently and firmly. We each searched the eyes of the other to find sense, to find solution, to find salvation. We each thought of our duties to her mother-to-be and my absent son, to ourselves and to each other. The gentleman, Elizabeth, who is he? No gentleman, kind sir, but a monster from a forgotten time in a faded country. No riddles, daughter, and no kind sirs. I will be your father no matter what the impedance or by whom. Now tell me, how do you know this man? Whether owing to the din of the crowd and the music or to the tension in her throat, Elizabeth explained in a most discordant tone. This man was the cause of Isaac's strange illness, the wasting neither wished to describe. This stranger to my house, this uninvited guest, who had stolen away the single source of our heart's warmth. Quickly, Elizabeth, we shall follow them. It is too late to stop them, father. But he will return Isaac before dawn. That is his way. I excused Elizabeth to her rooms. She gathered her future mother to her and hurried up the stairs. With a heart heavy with deceit and desperation, I made the excuse to our guests. All the gaiety after so many years of solitude was more than Sarah could abide. 
The newlyweds had gone up with her to assure her that all was well. Everyone truly understood. Everyone was so kind, so complimentary, so convivial. When, at last, the invited guests and the hired staff had abandoned our home, I ascended the stairs to hear the whole unfortunate tale and to await the dawn. Even my old friend and companion told the hour in a dull and sadder fashion. I checked on Sarah in our suite of rooms, and, satisfied that she was well and goodly ensconced, I proceeded down the hall to the wing that Isaac and Elizabeth were to occupy as man and wife. Elizabeth had changed from the magnificent ice-blue gown she had worn all evening to a simple travelling outfit of chestnut brown. I realised, with unfathomable sadness, that this was the first costume that I had ever seen her wear, the one she had wore upon her arrival. I knew with unshakable faithfulness that this would be the last dress I would ever see on her. Dr. Reichman, please sit. She had never shifted, never turned from the open French doors at the balcony of her room. Yet she knew I was there. This is all my fault, she began. I understood it to mean, as lovers do, that the actions of one are visited upon the other, not that she was in any way an instrument in this catastrophe. As you know, she continued, turning slightly in the moonlight so that I could clearly see what Isaac saw in her, when I met your son, he was still a student at Budapest University. Yes, I believe you have both told me as much. It was just before Isaac received his doctorate in medicine. And at that her face grew hard or wistful, I could not tell. So many emotions in she and I. What Isaac never said to you, for my sake, I believe, was that he wanted to come right home after graduation. He wanted to return here to you and your wife. I made him travel with me and away from you. I could easily see the sadness and guilt that held her features. Her shyness and reticence came not from her rearing alone, but also from shouldering the consequences of her determination. A determination gone terribly wrong. And here it was, wrong still. Tell me everything, dear Elizabeth. Spare me nothing, child. For your sake and mine, and the sakes of those others we love, tell me all. And so she began her tale. Through the smallest hours of the earliest morning, she told me her story, and throughout her story, my downstairs clock called to me, Tempest Fugit, and Dread returned. I convinced Isaac to travel with me out of the Austrian Empire and into Wallachia, into the old Ottoman Empire. I hoped that had not sounded as incredulous as I felt. Gott in Himmel, what would have possessed Isaac, either of them, to act so foolishly? as far as Turgu Muirs, in the Transylvanian region of Romania. She looked so crestfallen, so saddened, that I barely had the courage to ask her to continue, so hard would it be on her. Still, I had to find out if this was indeed the key to my son's recent sickness and his new disappearance. All right, dear Elizabeth, everything will be all right. Continue your tale, and you will have no more interruptions from me. She spoke first of their courtship, of Isaac's last semesters at university. How he often spoke lovingly of Amsterdam and of his parents. He wanted so badly to return to his home, but would not do so without her approval and consent. She proposed a journey. A journey of discovery, she called it. They would take a little time after his graduation to explore the world and themselves before settling into the routine of respected doctor and his Hausfrau. Isaac was against it at first, 
A trip into a strange and foreign land? A waste of time. Paris, Rome, London, he suggested. For their wedding trip, he reasoned. Anywhere but the Carpathian Mountains. But he relented at the sight of her, at the sound of her voice, the touch of her soft caress. He already felt married to her in his heart, if not on paper, nor before God and his parents. And so they travelled as a married couple down the Danube, away from Amsterdam, away from Budapest, and towards the very pit of darkness. She dared not look up into my face. She knew too well that I had realised the implication of the travel arrangements, and that her admission forfeited her entitlement to her mother-in-law's white wedding dress. She spoke hesitantly about the reed banks and the water lilies along the river and the deep cool forests that bordered it. She spoke only of simple, non-committal things, all of their daytime delights. She spoke then of her lifetime fascination with the gypsies and her desire to see them and their lands. This desire led them down the Danube from Budapest to Baja. They travelled by coach from there to Seged. Then they went again by ship up the Muir's River and deep into Transylvania. Arriving at the city of Turgu Muirs, they registered as man and wife at the beautiful old hotel that capped the Piata Titruli. They were a couple as much enjoyed for their youth and beauty as for their charm and wit, and Theatre Square was the place for the young and adventurous in the Transylvanian basin. For the first few days, they rose early each morning. They would breakfast in the hotel on fresh-laid eggs and cheese and milk. After breakfast, they would explore the quaint and ancient town or take short trips into the neighbouring countryside. Isaac is quite the painter, Doctor. Wonderfully talented. Yes, Isaac is much like his mother, I admitted. But their travel itinerary and leisure activities were not what concerned me. Please continue, my dear. An explicit order only brushed the civility of her request. She lowered her eyes as if in agreement. Still, Elizabeth could not fully comply. After our breakfast, we would hike to the nearby forest... It was principally conifer and beech, with some ash and other species nearer the river. Here I painted the landscape and wildflowers, while Isaac preferred to represent the wildlife. There were bears and lynx, wild boars and wolves, deer, and other small mammals and reptiles. Isaac was never afraid, and I was always confident in his company. In the open air above, we often saw hawks and buzzards soaring on the lookout for prey. Eagles inhabited the region at several locations, Doctor. Owls lived in the forest, and migrating storks passed through. Elizabeth realised the distant coldness of her recitation, the forced and boring bookishness. I could see the truth of that in her eyes. She needed to stress the dull normalcy of it all, before she could tell the terror. Where was I? Oh yes, our picnics. Our lunch was generally bread and cheese, cold meats, cakes and fruit. Whatever would keep through the day. We would take along some local wines or beer for Isaac to drink. And of course, there was plenty of fresh water in the mountain springs. That is how we spent those leisure days, hiking and painting and picnicking. We would eventually find our way back to the hotel for some rest before dressing for dinner and our wonderful night out. Did I mention the excellent food the locals prepare? Young love can make anything palatable, dear child. No, Doctor. Not anything. Elizabeth seemed to have immediately regretted her outburst and sought to mollify it. But I mustn't get ahead of my story. You should know it all. 
Perhaps there is a clue that I have overlooked, a remedy that your superior mind can foresee. The storm clouds dissipated as quickly as they had gathered, so I permitted her to continue on with her tale. Her inclusion seemed pointless, so many innocuous details, but I allowed them just the same. We began our dinner with soup, a habit we picked up from the locals. Then we would have our main course, such as peppers stuffed with meat and vegetables, or seasoned minced meat wrapped in cabbage or vine leaves, or spicy meatballs. We followed this with a dessert of cold pudding or fruit and cakes. Isaac would drink the beer that was brewed in the region, while I preferred the excellent local red and white wines. We would finish our meal and begin our evening adventures with a locally distilled, very strong plum brandy, either Tweaker or Palinka. Brandy and champagne became our evenings, Doctor, our merriment, our life. Theatre Square is surrounded by the gayest nightlife a town can afford. Cafes, music halls and art galleries dot the sidewalks of the square. One need never leave for need of interesting and talented companions. They sound like damn bohemians, Elizabeth, or mist and no substance. Mist and no substance? How right you are. How clever of you to see what we should have seen. But this is not about the bohemians, Doctor. Transylvania is ethnically quite mixed. Our village was almost exclusively Romanian. But it was also inhabited by a group of Ukrainians and a few Poles. There was a German component, I recall, and an extensive Hungarian population, each with its own language and distinctive culture. Elizabeth, is all this truly necessary? What is the point, dear? She seemed quite wounded by my interruption, a fragile soap bubble broken by my crude demand. I wished to apologise, but found that I could not. She seemed to understand and recover. She continued as if I hadn't spoken, or as if she had something more important to convey. Our village held an additional surprise. Nearby, a few gypsies practiced metalworking, and they often passed through the centre of town selling goods from carts. They also helped the locals, milking cows, making cheese, cutting hay, and so on. They converged on the plaza after their daily work to ply their other trades. The gypsies would set up small rugs on the corners of Theatre Square. They truly sold the spells and potions I had heard of as a child. The ancient mothers of the tribe would gaze into their globes of smooth, round crystal and tell fortunes. Or they would shuffle oddly pictured cards, I never did quite understand what they called them, and reveal your destiny from interpreting them. After sunset, the plaza remained well enough lit for the visiting crowds of young intellectuals and artists to gather and find romantic this gypsy culture. Too young and too clever to follow the lead of the older locals who locked their shutters and stayed inside. Elizabeth turned to look at me. I knew all had been a prologue to this moment. Did the downstairs clock strike? I could not breathe or blink or swallow. It was on one of these evenings after dinner in the theatre, flitting from cafe to gallery to tavern, that we encountered a most fascinating rumour. A Roman from Italy? I interrupted. No, Doctor. Let me explain. In Transylvania, the ethnic Romanians are called Magyars, and the gypsies belong to the Roma clan. I nodded to Elizabeth in understanding and with the intent that she continue. She looked directly into my eyes. My brows were drawn as tight as my jaw. She knew, without my saying, that I thought gypsy fortune-telling was hogwash. The rumour I speak of was the man who was your guest tonight. She had gained my attention, as she knew she would. What would cause him to follow them all the way to Amsterdam? I returned to her my reserved thoughts and devoted my full consideration to her tale. It was a warm evening, that I remember. 
Perhaps it was the brandy. We promenaded along the square without intention, without direction. We floated as if on a lazy stream or in a tender breeze. The moon was full, very full. Too full. The street lamps were lit, but secondary. The town square glowed. It was a magical night. We danced in the streets to the sound of itinerant musicians, some in the taverns or cafes, some on the street or in the square itself. We danced until we were giddy, until we were exhausted, until we were isolated. We had danced away from the lights and the noise, and found ourselves at the mouth of a lonely, darkened alley. From the crisp blackness and into the gaslight, the moonlight, Dragos appeared. He was like no other man I had ever seen before. Dragos was the man here this evening. Yes, Doctor, the same. He looked the normal man to me, Elizabeth. Yes, Doctor, and that is the dilemma. He appears as normal as can be. The hall clock called, startling us both. There was a moment of quiet between us, and then she continued without my leave. When he stepped from the shadows, the light caught him. It was almost as if he had just materialised then and there. He was taller and leaner than our Isaac, but still, he exuded so much more strength and ferocity. His hair gleamed so remarkably bright. No, I can sense what you're thinking, Doctor. I don't mean it was like that pale, pale Nordic blonde. This was honestly different. It shone. It shone like his eyes. These were truly distinctive. Did you notice them yourself? The palest of pale blue. A stained glass colour that should only have been found in the church window, not in the fawn-like and slanted eyes of a man. The skin of his hands and neck were bone white, and he would have seemed dead but for the flush of his cheeks and lips. Those lips, I have never seen on a man or woman lips like those. They were full of obscenities so rich and plump and perfect. Then he spoke. We were already much charmed, Isaac and I, by the delightful speech pattern of the Transylvanians. But in Octavian Gabriel Dragos, speech became a prayer, a wish invoiced. When I tell you, Doctor, that Octavian Dragos could charm the lights from the night sky and all manner of bird and beast, I am not being poetic. Dragos has a power not known in other men. None should have it. And it was this power that he used to overcome our reticence and destroy our virtue, and ultimately to ruin your son. Please, my dear, I'm afraid we waste much time on inessentials. I apologise, Doctor, but you do need to understand certain things. Elizabeth stood from the winged chair, with a look that told me she was not aware she occupied it. She moved to the French doors of the balcony and looked out at the moonlit night sky. That night with Dragos was very much like this. Not quite as cool, mind you, but clear and bright. Magical, she added wistfully, as this one was. So we were stunned by the sight of this beautiful gentleman, tall and polite in his fine evening clothes his manner gracious, his dress and speech impeccable. He was clever and witty and gay. He knew everything and everyone. He had wealth in his pockets and adventures on his tongue. In this so-called peasant village, with a rural gypsy, we became the hayseeds, the country cousins, the students to the master. Dragos took us further away from the main thoroughfare and deep into hidden corners of Turgumurs. Here, in these hovels that stood for taverns, we tasted richer, rawer wines, and foods cruder and more comforting. The music was plainer, but what it lacked in artifice, it more than made up for in soulfulness. The men and women were less genteel and cultured, but it was their very earthiness that gave them life. Real life, true life, not the superficial applique that we have made society. 
Elizabeth was fully facing me, her intended father-in-law, at the end of this declaration. Whether she was daring me to contradict or condone, I believe she herself did not know. But the bottle was unstopped, the cask uncorked. We took him to our bed. Perhaps it was the flatness, the dullness, the very artlessness of the statement that shattered the calm expression on my face. Initially, I do not believe that she thought I understood what she had told me. Then, immediately, she realised I did. Elizabeth turned her head in shame, the shame that rooted her body in place. If she did not think that I knew she had already been punished enough, I enlightened her. You poor, poor children. How miraculous your love to have survived that. Elizabeth Catherine Wilde had never known forgiveness until this moment, had never before known the complete, unrestricted love of a devoted parent. This I saw. Oh, Father, I... No, no. No more of that. Your calling me Father means more to me than you can ever imagine. Come quickly, daughter. Finish telling me what I need to know so that we may safely bring our Isaac home. In our defence, I will say again that we had been besotted by our adventure. Our first freedom, our first decision-makings, it had made us quite giddy even without the spirits of alcohol or no. We had at first just thought to return the kindness and generosity that Dragos had shown us. We invited him back to our rooms for some brandy and conversation. It was late, so no concierge was on duty. When we entered our suite, Isaac slipped off his coat and boots and invited Dragos to do the same. In the soft lamplight, we arranged ourselves on pillows and divans, drank and chatted. And as the drink and conversation mounted, our costumes we dishevelled. I still do not know quite how. Isaac removed his tie, I suppose. Then Dragos did the same. Dragos unbuttoned his shirt. Isaac did the same. It turned into some comical competition between them. I was to be the judge. Isaac asked which of them had the larger biceps, so shirts were removed. Isaac won that round. Dragos insisted that they remove their undershirts to compare pectorals, wherein he was the champion. They rolled their trouser legs up for the competition of the calves and lowered them for the thighs. I was called upon to pass judgment on each part, each muscle. They enjoyed my embarrassment, my reticence. But as I have already told you, Isaac's body was not unknown to me by then, and the contest was with his approval, with his complicity. I pointed out how much more manly the hair on Isaac's chest appeared. Dragos had me feel his own smooth chest for comparison. I was caught between them. Locked between these young male bodies, I could feel their strength, smell their manliness. Then Isaac was kissing the nape of my neck. I was caressing Dragos's smooth, muscular, naked back. Dragos was doing something to Isaac. It all happened so quickly. Quickly or slowly, I am no longer certain of many of the events that followed. I remember lifting my face to kiss Isaac and found him kissing Dragos instead. It did not seem at the moment unnatural. I caressed their chests and they both replied to me in kind. We stumbled into the bedroom, onto the bed. You may stop here, Elizabeth. I have heard enough in my practice of both medicine and law to imagine the rest. Naturally, I would never embarrass you, Doctor, but there is more you should know. I did not awake until late morning after that encounter. There was a banging at the door to our suite. The hotelier was concerned that we had missed breakfast. I assured him that it was only due to our late night and that we would be down presently for an early luncheon in the dining room. I went back to the bedroom and flung open the windows to let in the new day. Dragos had gone, slipped out during the night, 
Isaac lay akimbo on and off the bed. I had to try, quite stridently, to awaken him. He was as white then as Dragos was in the moonlight, and Isaac's new paleness emphasised the twin small wounds at his throat. Two punctures, as if made by a two-tined fork or a sharp pen nib. I shook him. I feared he would not wake. I was already convinced I had lost him to the wages of sin. His eyes fluttered. Elizabeth, he begged me, shut the drapes. I merely assumed that the drink was taking its revenge upon him. I gave him some rescue, but sent him to his bath. He was his old self, my lovable Isaac, when he emerged, bathed and shaved and dressed. We went down to eat and enjoy the day. It was overcast, as I recall. It threatened rain all day. Perhaps that is why I failed to notice his sensitivity to the light. Perhaps I did not wish to reflect on the previous evening. We shopped around the village for trinkets and souvenirs to bring home from our journey. It was a lovely day, dispelling the night previous. We mutually avoided the bedroom at our return to the hotel. We changed into evening dress and went to our dinner. Octavian Gabriel Dragos was waiting us at our table. I had no interest in repeating our last night's performance, but Isaac was powerless in his spell. Neither your son nor I ate much at dinner. Dragos ate nothing. I thought to excuse myself at dinner's end and left the men to their own pursuits. I assumed, fool that I was, unworldly, unknowing, that without me as the crux, no mutual act would transpire between them. Isaac did not return to me until the twilight before dawn. He was haggard and feverish. He was weak unto collapsing upon our floor. Your son was dying, Doctor, and I knew that it was as Dragos wished. I undressed him and dragged him into our bed. I rushed to the entrance to our suite and called for help. The hotelier's wife came up immediately. She hurried past me and into the bedroom. Without shame, she tore the covers from our bed and examined your naked son. She cursed and prayed and cried in words I could not understand. But I did understand that she knew what was wrong and how to help us. She fetched her husband, and together they moved us and all our belongings out of the hotel, through a back alley and into their own home behind. She wrapped Isaac snugly and placed him in their own bed as her husband bedecked the house with crucifixes and plats of garlic. She placed a beautiful Byzantine pendant around his neck and took me into the kitchen. Here she taught me to make a local remedy, a thick and pungent garlic soup that, she said, would do as much to cure poor Isaac as to thwart his contaminator. Under her tutelage, I prepared the soup, first as a broth, until he grew strong enough for the thick pottage. For three days and nights I fed this horrible slop to him, and for three days and nights it stormed. Great bolts of lightning lit the dark and crowded alleyway. Huge peals of thunder shook the humble cottage. And from dusk until dawn we heard the cry, the howl, of a terrible creature. A creature I did not need to have explained to me. Dragos was on the prowl, and he wanted your son. We reeked of garlic, Isaac and I. We smelled just like the natives. It wasn't until Isaac was strong enough to leave that I realised why. They were protecting us from Dragos. If he couldn't scent us, he couldn't find us. He had already marked Isaac in his fashion, so the locals took the most sensible measure they could. When Isaac finally awakened from what must have been a coma of sorts, he remembered nothing. They lied and told him that there was a mysterious illness that claimed the village and that he was one of the unfortunates taken in its toll. In a few more days, Isaac was ready to leave Turgi Muir's. The hotelier and his wife made all the arrangements. 
We were to leave just past dawn. They had provided us with enough food and passage on a boat to Saged. During the long trip home, to your home, we never mentioned any of the days in the company of Tragos or in the hotelier's home. Perhaps Isaac forgot in his fever, and I put it aside in my shame. I looked at Elizabeth for some time before I spoke. Even a man as old as I knew that what she did, she did for love. And she more than demonstrated the greatness of her love for Isaac. Get a little rest, daughter. We shall have much to do when Isaac returns. I left her alone in the study, checked on my wife, and ascended the stairs to the library. Sarah was not asleep. This I knew by virtue of our years together. Old married couples may not tell each other everything, yet they hide nothing. She was allowing me to manage the circumstances, whatever they were, as the head of the house. I lit my desk lamp and pulled down some old volumes from my library shelf. These books were no longer mere curiosity. They contained valuable information. I did not possess all that I might require on such short notice, but I could make do. I took the lamp and traversed the house gathering this and that. This evil would stop tonight. I returned to the library and shut the door. I heard the hour tone, and in agreement with my old clock's new warnings, I started to make my preparations. My wakefulness, my industry, and my small lamp all prevented me from noticing the subtle graying of the black night sky. I never even heard the chiming admonitions of my most reliable counsel. Like an ill-prepared actor, I missed my cue and was forcibly reminded of the seriousness of my role. An enormous crash and rending brought me to myself. I scooped the improvised tools from my desk and flew up the stairs. Unless I missed my guess, the French doors of Elizabeth's room had been scattered upon her floor. I tore open her door to find a fiend at her throat. Their shared passion had brought the scent of her to his nose. That scent drew him to return. Her blood brought him back, and now they shared that as well. He had torn at her neck, a crude gesture, and soaked them both with a surfeit vitality he could not contain. I was horrified, I admit. I could not move. I understood finally what Elizabeth had meant when she said she was powerless to resist. She slumped, and I knew she was dead. The creature, not a man, pulled away slowly, relishing her dying drop. I found my voice. Stand, devil! Stand and face me! The demon crouched lower over the inert body of dear Elizabeth, as if she would give him some protection from my wrath. Stand, I say, and meet your doom! And still he moved not. Finally I demanded, Stand, Isaac! Face your father and your fate! And the devil with my features confronted me. My beautiful son, all of my hopes and dreams and aspirations covered with the blood of his murdered fiancée. The last of her life's blood dripped from his twin sharp fangs. Gott in Himmel, no! We both turned to the source of the scream. Sarah stood in the doorway, horror clutching her face as tightly as she clutched her dressing gown. In that brief moment, a mere blink, I watched her fragile features crack, and gone with her composure, her mind. She stretched out her hand and threw herself towards him, he who had been her son, and he to her. I flung myself between them at the very last moment, and with Sarah gripping and tearing at my back and Isaac at my front, I manoeuvred the whittled leg of my favourite library chair and plunged it directly into my only son's chest. Isaac rolled away, unable to remove the improvised stake from his sternum. I could get no nearer to him for the stranglehold his mother had on me. Together, we, his parents, watched as Isaac achieved the transition that takes the vampire from this world and into his damned next. 
Sarah paralleled her son's change and locked into her own paralysis. Her features grew slack, her mind remote. In his death, something in her died as well. I shut them away that very week. My beloved son, with his beautiful and devoted fiancée Elizabeth, sealed in a tomb constructed for they two. The single inscription, Rackman, accorded to my dear daughter-in-law the title she never truly held in life, but deserved all the more in her death. Sarah I shut away as well. I thought to keep her at home with me, a reminder of my failure, but I could not long contend with her curses and the screams. Not if I was to be about my new vocation, the hunting of Octavian Gabriel Dragos, and all like him. I was alone with only dread for a companion, and the damn hall clock that chimed again and again. A former friend, it now mocked me, its very sound reminding me of all I had lost to time, and how little of it I had left. Thank you very much. That was read, by the way, by uh, Simon Hildebrandt. Simon is a web and game developer from Australia. He, he currently lives in Sydney. In addition to narrating stories for the Starship Sofa, Drabblecast, Escape Pod, and, well, us, uh, Simon does web development at Red Ant, and in his spare time, he develops games with tools like Android and Piglet and web applications with Rails and No. I have no idea what any of that is. I am a man of the last century. Of course, I was saying that back in the last century. Ah, well. A bit more about David. Uh, David Thomas Lord is the author of the best-selling vampire novel Bound in Blood, which was a Lambda Literary Award finalist. In 2006, he released the sequel, Bound in Flesh, and the novella The Secrets of the Fae, both nominees for the Lambda and the Spectrum Awards. He is currently working on his first non-horror novel. Well, this was a good evening, yes? Yes, yes, it was. Uh, to let you know... We're putting together a series of shows that will honor the nominees of this year's Bram Stoker Award for short fiction. At this time, we have them all lined up, I think, and are having their stories prepared. There's a range of work represented here, so when we begin posting these, I hope you'll tell your friends and come by yourself. I'm looking forward myself. And again, as always, I... I hope you'll consider making a donation to the Nook, help to keep things warm and flickery, keep us in dust and in atmosphere. And I hope you'll be back next week. So, best to you for the days that come. Have a safe walk home tonight. It's dark, yes, yes, but, well, well, what could happen out there, hmm? <laughs> Go. Scurry home. Get in bed, pull up the covers, and pleasant dreams, hmm? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.